Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Well, we went to the home of a shape-shifting ghost this weekend, Wendy. We played there. We were in the park. We were in the backwoods area looking for the Ridgeway Phantom. Yes, but the problem is, how do you know if you see it? That's true. It's a shape-shifter. We were performing in Blue Mounds, Wisconsin, for the Festival of the Mounds, otherwise known as the Ridgeway Phantom's favorite event every year. And you're right, because the Ridgeway Phantom was a shape-shifter, uh, it could have been any of the people at our show. Right. Or it could have been one of the trees in the park behind us. Yes, it could have been anything. So I guess <laughs> that's why we didn't see the Ridgeway Phantom. It wasn't because it's not real. It's because we didn't recognize him. <laughs> or her, as that's, it were. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But we were going to keep our eyes out for the Ridgeway Phantom on the way back from yes. Blue Mounds. And unfortunately, we didn't see anything. No... Although we did have an unlucky event happen to us. Oh, and that was kind of strange. This was strange. Okay, so let's set it up for everybody. Yeah. So we played on Thursday in Madison, Wisconsin. We played on Friday in Blue Mounds, Wisconsin, which is a small town about, oh, 40 minutes away. So not too far away. And then on Saturday night, we played in a town called Viroqua, Wisconsin, which is about... It's it's like 75 miles away from Madison, but because it's on a very rural highway, it takes a couple hours to get there. It is a long haul. Yeah, it's a long haul. It's very hilly, pretty drive. Beautiful during the daylight. Yep. Terrifying at night. And it is deadly <laughs> at night, you know. So we finish the show. The show ends about 1030. And then uh, we say our goodbyes and leave Viroqua at quarter after 11 and make our way back to Madison. As we're driving, um, well, something weird happens. So hardly see any wildlife the entire time. But, and I'm driving, and Ben, our guitar player in our band, is sleeping in the passenger seat next to me. And then in the back seat is Wendy and her boyfriend. And as we're going, a raccoon runs across the road. I'm like, hey, what's that? You know, and everybody's like, oh, look at that. And I think Scott is like, oh, look at that raccoon. And it was a big raccoon running across the street. And I'm like, whew, glad I didn't hit him. 30 seconds later, a possum runs in front of us. Yeah, and this is after not having seen any right. wildlife on the road the entire trip there or back to this point. So 30 seconds later, the possum runs across the street. You're like, oh, look at that possum. All righty. 30 seconds after that, I see an owl flapping, and that comes, and then the owl smacks against the window. Yeah, that was a bummer. Right. Gigantic bird. Yeah, it was a monster, too. It was, it was the Mothman. <laughs> Oh, I hit the Mothman with the van. So I guess now we can officially name the new Sunspot van, the Owl Slayer. <laughs> the Owl Slayer. Well, here's the thing, though. So I get home and I like start looking up like, is it bad luck to hit an owl with your car? <laughs> and I did. That. And you've been watching a lot of Twin Peaks lately. Right, I you? have been. And I've been watching too many things. But like people see an omen. They see an animal yeah. as an omen. 
And the owl is infamous in the paranormal world. Right. And the first thing I think of when I think of an owl, for, I mean, we discussed this in our Twin Peaks episode that the owls are aliens. They're messengers in <laughs> Twin Peaks. And there's owl rings. There's the owl cave. The owls are not what they seem. Okay. that's right. But that's fiction. But then I also think of the book Communion, because when Whitley Strieber sees the owl, that's what makes him think of, uh, that's what makes him remember his abduction. So like the owl is always giving me some kind of otherworldly thought. So maybe the owl was trying to send us a message and then we hit it. Right. Oops. Well, the owls were were messengers in some cultures, like like Roman culture, Roman and Greek, the owls were Mm. messengers from the gods and stuff. And in some cultures, owls represent death. Oh, well, look what you did to death. Boom, well, take but also, that death. But people, you should see the amount of people who ask questions on the internet is hitting yeah. an owl with my car. Bad luck. Oh, well, owls are such curious looking creatures, you know? They're weird. They can do the thing where they spin their heads around. <laughs> yeah. And they sound so spooky. Yeah. <laughs> when you hear them at night, there's a great horned owl that frequents my neighborhood. And every so often, it is so loud, it'll wake me up. It just echoes, whoo, hoo, hoo, hoo. Yeah. And I looked it up because I was curious as to what kind of owl it was. But yeah, it's definitely the the song of the great horned owl. Yes. For whom the bell tolls, owl, that the bell tolled for you. It did. And they're very spooky creatures because you rarely see them during the day. Right. They lurk around at night, killing things. But then, so. pe- I mean, people were talking about like, well, I hit an owl, so then I said a prayer for the owl, and I burned sage with my grandma, and all these different Aww. things, and I'm like, what yeah. am I supposed to do? Like, am, am I supposed to burn some sage? Because, I, I, first of all, I don't think we killed the owl. Well, I, yeah, it didn't hit as hard as that turkey. No, I hit a turkey one time in the van. It was loud. And that, I mean, that turkey hit, it was like getting a butterball slapped against the windshield. <laughs> Okay, but no, this is hopefully the let's let's think positive. I yeah. hope the owl survived because it was a beautiful creature. Sure. And it was a big one. Whatever message it had for us, uh, at least it made us think a little bit more about owls and also a little bit more about safe driving late at night on the way home from gigs right. in the middle of rural Wisconsin. So be careful if you're out there. Yes, please do be careful. But that was just a funny thing. I mean, because it's sad if we, you know, kill the creature. Uh, but second of all, I'm not the only person that looked up. Is it bad luck to hit an owl? You know, <laughs> right. what does an owl mean? And then everyone's like, what does an owl mean in your dreams? What does an owl mean yeah. when they cross your path? And it's just the owl is a spirit animal of a lot of people. And yeah. some people say like, bad luck. And what I believe, though, is that it was bad luck for the owl. And I apologized to oh. the universe for, for hitting the yeah. owl. But then again, could the owl have been chasing that raccoon and the possum? Because they are murderers. Also, all these animals were like fleeing across the road. Was there something bigger that was, right. you know, coming after them or that frightened them? You know, like, oh, say, perhaps a UFO. Yeah, it could have been the UFO. It could have been the Squatch. I mean, that's where the stuff happens in the middle of very low traveled areas. Yeah. In the dark. You know, it was pitch black. It was very clear star viewing. So I'm just saying something shook up the nature in that area and then it all came running toward the street. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, one time we played in Dubuque. And I took Highway 14 back up to La Crosse. Uh, I was so tired as I was driving back up, I thought a UFO landed in front of me. Wow. 
Well, maybe it did. I mean, I just saw this weird. I'm like, what's this weird thing in front of me? And then I realized my eyes were closed. I'm like, hey, all right. And so. Oh, man, you were dreaming. What I was seeing was I was it was like Homer Simpson when he goes in the land of chocolate or whatever. When he's <laughs> oh, driving no. and he's all of a sudden in the land of chocolate. <laughs> that happened to me on the way back from a long night in Dubuque, oh. you know, 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Well, OK. Highway 14. Beware. Keep your eyes beware out, of- guys, because the owls are not what they seem out there. But anyway, I just thought uh, that was weird. And it was like a little paranormal thing that happened happened yeah and obviously we might be overthinking it but we're probably overthinking it it was weird but you know what i'm not overthinking today what and that is the cool people who decided to review our podcast on itunes oh yeah todd hedges five stars interesting and fun two exclamation points miss wendy lynn did you hear what i said i said two exclamation points Double the excitement. It is. Double your pleasure with Todd Hedges. I've been a listener for about six months now and always look forward to the shows for the guests, stories, and Mike, Allison, and Wendy do a great job interacting with each other and the guests. They are fun to listen to. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. And I really enjoy the content and different types of paranormal topics. Definitely a must listen. Hey, hey, hey. Hedges, thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. And then we've got one from Scooterboy24. Midwest mayhem. He says, I have just begun listening and truly enjoying the subjects, especially the Mothman topic, which I'm recently obsessed with. Yeah. That was me, not him. (laughs) Uh, Approach and collaborative conversations. Great production, too. Oh, he, well, thank you so much, Scooter Boy 24. Scooter Boy noticed. Yeah, I appreciate that. A lot of work goes into that. (laughs) Listen, dude, 43. Five stars. Entertaining, he says. Oh. I'm assuming it's a guy because it's listen, dude. Yeah. Uh, stories that intrigue you mixed with lighthearted batter and great original music. Yes. Worth a listen. Oh, man. It, oh, you guys are making us so happy yeah, here today. It, Thank you. It always excites me when somebody mentions the song. In the right. They noticed the music. They didn't just stop it at the end. Right. Because that, that's a lot of the work is putting together original music every week. I mean, that's part of the fun. A lot of the fun. That's is what great, we do. We love it. So thank you. If you guys would like to leave a uh, review on iTunes, uh, see you on the other side, leave a review. Five stars. We're going to read them aloud on the air. We're going to shout you out. And we'd love to shout you listeners out next if you leave a review. So please yeah. do that and check us out on iTunes and do that there. Thanks a million. Okay, so we had a fun weekend. Viroqua. A little too fun. Yeah, a little too fun. (laughs) Uh, We didn't see the Ridgeway Phantom, but we did see the Mothman fly across the screen. Anyway, (laughs) would that be actually a Lechuza, the the Owl Witch that we talked about in the Mothman episode? Well, real quick, I was just going to say, also speaking of the Mothman, uh, while I was on my long run yesterday, I ran across three sandhill cranes, and it reminded me of at the Mothman Museum, there were newspaper articles where they were saying, Oh, what they saw was a sandhill crane. Oh. And I'm looking at it going like, I don't think I would confuse that for a winged humanoid with red glowing eyes. But nope. yeah, it made me think of the Mothman. No, I've seen He's the there. I've seen the sandhill crane too when I've been running, especially if I run up north. <laughs> and it is scary. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, it's scary to and encounter one of those. And some of those noises they make yeah. are really it's, interesting. Like, like it's a really interesting <laughs> noise. And one time one time I saw a, I don't know what you, I saw a gaggle of cranes, uh, like all together. And as I ran past them, like they were all making the noises. And I'm like, that is pretty weird. But would you confuse that for a winged humanoid? 
not the way that it's been described yeah. by the original people who saw it is nothing like a crane. Yeah. So the way these guys talk about the Mothman, they make it sound like that Masters of the Universe character Zodiac or whatever that had wings and could fl- like that's they make it sound like a wing like, like Batman, Batman that's flying in the air, <laughs> you know? Or right? Um, doesn't Arthur from the Tick have wings? Oh, he doesn't have wings. Yeah, he's got wings like that because he's a moth. So Arthur from the Tick has, okay, has there that. You go. So that's what I picture. I don't picture. The sandhill like crane. a brown bird, right? The sandhill cranes are the swamp gas of Mothman explanations. As it's crap, <laughs> okay, total so crap. That, sorry, sorry to get off topic a little That's bit. That's right, and we should get to the topic because I think this yes. this stuff is very interesting. And I was excited because this last week somebody came out and said they discovered the solution to the Voynich manuscript. Whoa. Right. Okay, okay, okay. The Voynich Manuscript. What is the Voynich Manuscript? What on earth? Okay. It's a codex. What's a codex? A codex is uh, it's like a book made of vellum. What's vellum? This makes me love it already. Calf skin. What? Yeah, vellum is made out of... You have to skin an animal. No. So, yeah. But you can buy vellum like... At the office supply store. Well, I'm sure you can, but it's, it's going to be artificial <laughs> vellum. They didn't print, they didn't, they didn't ink the Voynich manuscript on stuff you get at Office Max. Oh, man. Okay. okay I don't like it so much anymore, the, but I it, like the artificial stuff because it's fun to draw. Sure. Yeah. It's fun to make little uh, parchment kind of things. And Yeah. Well, the Voynich manuscript. Now, let's go back to exactly what it is. It's an ancient book. We would consider a medieval book. That has these strange, like crudely drawn illustrations. Um, it's star charts, it's plants, and it's naked ladies. Whoa, yeah. scandalous. Very scandalous naked ladies. Um, <laughs> and it, it also, all the text is in an unreadable language. Okay? So the cool. thing is, is that it's untranslatable. They haven't figured out what exactly it is. It's just a book printed on animal skin with these illustrations and they can't figure out what any of it says. Now, 1912 is kind of when it comes into the modern era and it's bought by this book dealer named Wilfred Voynich and he finds it tucked away in the library of Villa Mondragone, this Italian Italian library. And he finds a letter inserted between its pages and the letter's dated uh, 1666, and it says that the book was once owned by Emperor Rudolf II, and Emperor Rudolf II believed that it was written by the English monk Roger Bacon. And that's what that's what mm. Rudolf II believed. Now, Rudolf II was a Holy Roman Emperor back in the day. You know, if we get to the 16th century. He's the Holy Roman Emperor. And when you're thinking about the Holy Holy Roman Empire, well, that's going to be in Constantinople. Because Istanbul... Which was Istanbul. Right. Was was once Constantinople, but that's nobody's business but the Turk. Been a long time gone. <laughs> yes. So you take the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire is huge and it's sprawling. And then once the, the Vandals, actually that was the group, the Vandals and the Goths were the group that kind of invaded parts of the empire. And you know what was funny? The Romans knew these Germanic barbarian tribes because of their mustaches. That was the thing. A Roman did not just have a stash. Okay. 
it was the Germanic tribes, the Goths, the Vandals, the people that came down and sacked Rome and everything. They had the mustache. So the Roman Empire splits into two halves. The eastern section becomes the Holy Roman Empire, which is based in Constantinople. And the western section, Rome as you think about it, which is, you know, headquartered in Rome itself, Italy, the Colosseum, guys wearing sandals and like little leaves on their heads and things like that, that crumbles. But the Holy Roman Empire to the east, that lasts for another, well, like 1,500 years. Rudolf II is the Holy Roman Emperor, and he's kind of sad. Like, not just, I mean, he just, he's a sad guy. Like depressed sad? Yeah. He suffers his first serious depression in 1582. And then he moves to Prague because he's the emperor. And he's like, you know what? Constantinople's not doing it for me. So I'm going to move to Prague. He's, you know, he feels sad and then starts his life (laughs) over in Prague. And he's trying to defend the Holy Roman Empire against the Ottomans, the Turks, and they always want to sneak in there and stuff. And it's hard to do that when you're sad all the time. But the thing is, he starts looking for different books that might help him, make him feel better. And so then he goes around to different, well, medicine people at the time weren't just, like we think of a doctor today, and you don't think of a doctor today as an astrologer, right? No, not at all. That'd be the last thing you think of. It's, oh, my doctor, he's great. He writes these really great astrology charts. Uh, No. So... He casts out and starts looking for different people to help him with his sickness and depression, and he's always looking for these old books. You're saying he didn't go to the Barnes Noble and go to the self-help section? No. He, he, he calls out. He calls out. And one of the guys that he calls upon is this two guys, John D. and Edward Kelly. And Edward Kelly is a psychic medium. He can, you know, talk to the dead, or he can, he, he can actually says that angels will talk through him. Okay. And stuff. And John D is an astrologer and a doctor and he, and an alchemist and he's a very, I mean he's very important in Elizabethan England because he's an actual advisor to Queen Elizabeth. In fact, oh, wow. he set the date of the coronation, which would be most astrologically advantageous. So they trust him big time. Right. This is before astrology was just you know like something you get an app on your phone and you're just like oh yeah. well. Let's check to see what the horoscope for the day. Like they believed in horoscopes. They thought that was science was a big thing. And that's funny because, you know, we think like that's crazy talk. But even a guy like Isaac Newton, I mean, he not only could figure out the area beneath a curve or whatever, uh, he also thought that he could turn lead to gold. And so he wrote just as much on alchemy as he wrote on physics. So these guys are serious. So John Dee... He's a big deal at the time. He's a little older than his buddy, Edward Kelly. and But they're like a pair because like John D. really wants to talk to angels. And he spends 30 years of his life trying to figure out instructions from angels to make a peaceful world. Wow. Yeah. So that's John D.'s mission. And so... He's got scrying mirrors, you know, where you look in a mirror and see if you get answers from the future or whatever. He's, yeah, he's yeah. trying to talk to angels in all these different ways. And him and Edward Kelly go around. They talk to these different, the Polish king. They talk to Rudolf II. And so they are like the psychic medium and the psychic medium's partner of the 16th century. You know, they hang out, they do the work. Now, this is my favorite. In 1587, during a spiritual conference in Bohemia, Edward Kelly informs D that the angel Uriel 
had ordered men to share all their possessions, including their wives. What? Possessions? Boo. Okay. By this time, Kelly had gained some renown as an alchemist and in fact was more sought after than Dee in this regard because alchemy was the line of work that had the most prospects for long-term financial gain because, well, you could make gold out of anything. Yeah. Right? So, and Dee was more interested in uh, talking to the angels and getting his save the universe philosophy, you know, to fix that. Anyway, Dee was pretty upset that Uriel told him to share his wife. Yeah. Um, okay. Understandable. But he went for it. And so, <laughs> right. So they oh. shared, and this is how they, this is how they broke up. They shared oh. wives. D goes back to England. Kelly goes on to work for Rudolph II for a long time. Nine months later, D's wife has a baby. He raises the child as his own. And uh, D was 60 at the time. And Kelly was 32. Ooh. So it probably wasn't John D's son. You know, he probably got upset about it. But the thing is, they link him to the Voynich manuscript as well, because Mm. some people think that he was trying to decipher it because he had this certain book. Let me find the actual name of the book here. But he had a certain book that he was trying to uncover as well. And that was interesting because this was the book of Soiga. And so he became obsessed with unlocking it. And he tried doing, uh, he wrote certain words backwards. He used mathematical script on some. And he tried to talk to the angels and see if the angels would also help him understand it. But they didn't. So Dee talked about trying to understand the Book of Soiga for years. And he said that he thought that it came from the Garden of Eden and all this kind of stuff. And so he had his own magical text that people thought. And some people thought that the, the Voynich manuscript might have been Dee's mystical book of Soiga because nobody has a copy of that now. Like the Voynich manuscript, uh, you can go to Yale and you can make an appointment to see it. That's cool. In fact, they have the whole thing digitized online that you can go through page wondering. by page. Yeah, it's 240 pages. It's not too bad. Yeah, it's like 120 pages full, 120 sheets of vellum of skin mm-hmm. folded. And they think that up to maybe 30 pages have been removed from it. And at mm. one point, it was loose-leafed. Okay? So they connected to John D. That He was one of the first ones. This mystic was one of the first people trying to uh, uncover the secret. And if they think it's written by Roger Bacon... Now, Roger Bacon invented the Baconator that you can get at Wendy's. <laughs> so that's why Which, he's famous. I, I have to say... I'm embarrassed to admit I find delicious. You love the Baconator. Sure. No, I, people I have love one bacon. once. 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 And anyway, so Roger Bacon, he didn't really invent the Baconator. Like that's not something from 13th century <laughs> England. But he was this English Franciscan bunk and people considered him a wizard. Cool. You know, that would be like going to church and your priest said that, okay, we're going to perform magic today. It's Gandalf at the... At the <laughs> it is. It's like going to church. altar. It's going to church and Gandalf is there. And one of the interesting things about Roger Bacon is that he was most famous for having what's called a brazen head. Like, okay, <laughs> what? right. What's a oh, brazen please head? Please elaborate. He didn't have the head. It wasn't his head. But he had a head made of brass or bronze. Okay. 
like an automaton that would answer people's questions. That sounds amazing. I think of the wizard from The Wizard of Oz. You know, you think about yeah. that big... That's kind of like a brazen head, except I don't think that was made of brass. It was green, I think, in the movie. Are there any paintings or images of this thing? Because that sounds incredible. Well, because Roger Bacon lived in the 13th century, they say that uh, like brazen head, uh, the symbol of that was actually something that people would put over apothecaries and pharmacies and stuff oh, because it was a symbol cool. of magic. There's not really a picture of his, but the brazen head symbol and the uh, pictures of it and illustrations uh, are all over the Middle Ages. Okay. And and probably uh, all over Google. Right. Therefore. Right okay. now I'm looking at a, a picture of, the, of Roger Bacon's brazen head from a 1905 book. Oh, yeah. But it's funny because then people would ask the brazen head questions. Oh, and, so it's like Zoltar. Yeah, it's exactly, Zoltar is one thing, it's exactly like, and this Zoltar is the fortune teller from the movie Big. Great movie. Is Zoltar, is it Voltan? Fortune teller machine is Zoltar. The fortune Maybe that's just a standard, Yeah, standard one I've seen. I have seen the Zoltar. In fact, we saw a fortune telling Elvis when we were in Nashville. <laughs> that's right. The, the Legends on Broadway is a store that has a fortune telling machine where the king of rock and roll himself will tell you your fortunes, baby. You know it, baby. That's right. Anyway. Actually, it's more like, I know it, baby. <laughs> so Roger Bacon was a monk, was a man of God. Was, you, know, you don't expect, well, you don't expect your priest to be Gandalf. But back in the 13th century, you could be Gandalf. <laughs> and I thought that was really cool that he had a brazen head. That is really cool. And sometimes it would just answer yes or no. Man, just imagine the parties that guy could have. I, well, he probably did have parties. Probably had wicked parties where not only you would have like ask the brazen head whatever question is on your mind, also had free Baconators for everybody. Oh, come on. So that's the thing. They think that uh, Rudolph II thinks that Roger Bacon wrote it. And it's mystical and it's magical and it's going to help him get out of his depression. And that's the whole thing. So the Voynich Manuscript has like six different sections. Okay. Uh, one is like a guide to plants. Looks like it's a guide to plants. Okay. The other looks like a recipe book. Mm. The third has like the naked ladies bathing and stuff. So it's like pictures. Yes, it's very sexy. No, it's not sexy at all. You see these pictures. If you look at the Voynich manuscript. Um, but the whole idea it is, uh, well, it's got astronomical charts in it too. And that's actually yeah. the only part that they can figure out because the symbols for the... Uh, you know that like each sign has a symbol, right? Yeah. So like I'm a Scorpio. It's like a little M with a tail. Yeah. And I'm an Aries, which is the bull. Yeah. And those constellations are associated with certain parts of the body. Like the Scorpio is associated with reproductive organs. Huh. Um, and I'm not sure what Aries is, but each part is associated with a part of the body. And that's the thing is they thought that if you were born during a certain time of year or under a weird sign or whatever that could contribute to your health problems. Hmm. So that's a whole thing too. They can recognize the astronomical signs, the, I'm sorry, the astrological signs, not astronomical, astrological signs that are in the manuscript. That's the one thing that they can know for sure. Okay, so, so is, this is like the medical astrology. Right. That's what they're got thinking. It. That's what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. Because the thing is, it's like, it's got recipes. It's got people bathing. It's got plants. Um, and they can't really recognize much of the plants. So okay. the, the, it's not like drawn, like you see somebody wearing a pot leaf shirt. And you're like, oh, I know what that plant is. This is, mm. this is plants that a lot of people can't recognize. Yeah. And so that's, the, so that's a mystery too. 
And this becomes a thing. And, and so uh, Wilfred Voynich, he's going to sell it. He brings it back and he finds a great thing to sell. You know, he's got this mysterious manuscript that's got ties to the Holy Roman Empire, that's got ties to John Dee, the mystic who was the advisor to Queen Elizabeth, maybe written by Roger Bacon, the 13th century English wizard. This is a great thing to sell. He comes back, this is a book dealer, and I mean, people start getting obsessed with it. This one couple spends 30 years of their lives trying to figure out the Voynich manuscript. Now, that's not their job, but it's their obsession. Sure. You know, they really get into it. And we got a guy that says he thinks that he figured it out this year. So exciting. Yes. So this is a guy named Nicholas Gibbs, and he's been interested for a long time. And he prints uh, a story in the Times Literary Supplement as a solution for the Voynich Manuscript. And what he says is that it's just a medieval women's health manual. Mwah, mwah. That's boring. It's not some magical treatise. It's not some grimoire. We'll talk about some famous grimoires coming up. Yeah. But uh, it's not a book of magic spells. He thinks that what's missing, those missing pages, are an index. And what really, uh, the reason you can't figure out what the words are is because it's all abbreviated Latin. And you'd be able to look at the index. You'd be able to see what the words mean or what each of those particular things means. Huh. So that's what he thought the solution was. Okay, well, that's kind of disappointing. Yeah. But, but what's interesting about the manuscript is that some people thought that Voynich just got it as a hoax, you know? Because, like, mm. before carbon dating, he could have just, you know, taken some old skins, inked it up, and created something where he could try to sell it for a lot of money and have all of this context around it that made people excited. I mean, we are talking about something 105 years after it's been introduced. There's been countless documentaries made and shows about it. There's a whole website, Voynich.mu, that this guy runs that talks about all the different possibilities and history and, and everything of it. And it's obsessed people. You know, this cover story of the Times Literary Supplement says that, you know, we the solution, and we're talking about it now. Like, we're ta- spending an hour of our lives discussing it. And right. we are not the first podcast to approach the Voynich Manuscript. I'm sure. So the thing yeah. is, could this be a hoax? A lot of people have thought over the years that it's just a hoax and this guy made it up and it's just gibberish. Trying to go for some attention. Right. But the text, you know, see, today we can run all of the letters of the text through cryptography software where you can start looking for patterns and there's yeah. there's this thing called zips law which says like the most used word is uh used twice as much as the second most used word which oh, is used wow. three you know uh and the third most used word is it, it's it's an algorithm that kind of goes through and says how many times that these that we use words in language and so you run it through like that. The, so this matches Zip's law. So whoever created this would have to know about something like that to make a realistic hoax. Yeah. And we run it through cryptography software and people find patterns. Now, they can't translate it, but they find patterns that are right up there with regular languages. Hmm. So that's the thing. If people did hoax it, then they did a great job of figuring out how to hoax it in a way that the code would match real life codes. Ah, okay. You know. So an elaborate hoax. It would be an extraordinarily 
<laughs> elaborate hoax to try to do it. And, you know, some people have said that it might come from East Asia, that they were figuring out a way to translate Chinese or Vietnamese into a Western, you know, European kind of form. Like that's one of the different uh, theories behind it. Another guy says that it's an ancient vowelless form of Ukrainian. Hmm. Okay. But he still can't translate it. Somebody else, oh, in the 1970s, there was a guy who named Robert Brownbaugh, and this is why it excites people, because he goes, he thinks that the, uh, it's a medieval treatise on the elixir of life. Ooh. Could help you live forever. So, of course, people are going to get excited about this thing, right? I'm excited. Right. And when you find out that it's just like a, a textbook on, well, women's medical stuff, it just doesn't make it sound very exciting, because we can pick that up at the bookstore. Any right. Yeah. And some of the other reasons he thinks about that is that, number one, you have the recipe book. So the, the, the recipe part of the book could just be saying, you know, different healing herbs, different things like that. And the women bathing, well, people used to bathe as medicine. Mm-hmm. Right. So now we bathe every day. I mean, every, yeah. you know, around there. Sure. Back then, bathing was like a special treat. Right. Yeah. And so that's the idea, that bathe in these waters with some herbs and stuff, and here are the herbs yeah. you use that'll clean up your business or whatever. Oh, okay. And, Makes sense. Well, that's what this guy's theory is. That's, uh, you know, Nicholas Gibbs. But the thing is, is that, I mean, immediately he comes out with it, and then everybody else is just poo-pooing. It's, it's almost like when those guys came out with the picture of uh, Amelia Earhart a couple months ago. Oh, yeah, the internet was quick to smack down. Right. The internet giveth and the internet taketh away (laughs) very quickly. (laughs) And very meanly. And so, you know, I see all of the paranormal sites like, hey, the Voynich manuscript, this guy thinks that he had discovered, you know, the the solution to it. And he's comparing it to all these different women's health manuals throughout the year. And this guy isn't, you know, he's not just some regular Joe. It's like me figuring out the Voynich manuscript. He's somebody that's, you know, studied it for 15 years. Yeah. And I don't think it's a hoax, number one, because they've carbon dated it back to the 15th century. So they have carb... The vellum and the ink, right? Yeah. And also, it was bound with goat skin, though later on so originally it shows that it was just a bunch of pages uh like loose and then it was bound later on so the goat skin is a couple centuries younger than the calf skin that it was written on huh okay so that's another interesting thing so whoever you know took out those missing 30 pages or whatever also might have screwed up and might not have put everything in the correct order. Okay. So that's another way that makes it more mysterious. Mm. Oh, and here's something about carbon dating that I did not know, Ooh. Wendy. Yeah, what's that, Mike? Okay. So we always figure that carbon dating, you can get pretty accurate, but you can't carbon date anything after 1950. You can't? No, because of the nuclear blasts. Oh, because of the above ground man. nuclear testing messed up like the carbon in the atmosphere when oh. you when you carbon date something that's newer than 1950 like you can't get an accurate read so when we say before the present the present stops at 1950 oh wow okay huh that's so that is an unintended unfortunate that is an unintended effect of nuclear testing and the nuclear age we live in that we can no longer carbon date like so in a hundred years when they'll be trying to carbon date something in the year 2000 or whatever, they'll be like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. It's after 1950, I can tell you that. 
So I guess which is good for that's that's fine for hoaxes like this. <laughs> anyway, but people did come out and they immediately said like and the thing is it's not just uh reasons why this guy was wrong. What was funny is it's also snarky stuff. You know, it's like it's, it's just people tweeting. Let me look at one of the Twitter statuses here. Like here we go again. I've reviewed dozens of solutions, and this one is just as unconvincing as the last 3,000. Oh. And uh, another one here. We're not buying this Voynich thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, like people come out, and they're just, the funny thing is these are academics and stuff, and it just goes to show that maybe it's the medium of social media that makes you into a jerk. You know, because these guys are talking just like if it it's somebody made a comment about your favorite band. Right. Yeah. I don't buy it. This solution sucks. <laughs> totally lame. Yeah. So it might not be, you know, it's not like he actually solved what it says. So he didn't solve the mystery of what the Voynich manuscript, like what it actually says. The idea was he solved the mystery of what it was. And... Uh, the fact that it was in the Times Literary Supplement was a cover story. I mean, that really, that's what kind of got everybody. Because it was a, and then it made the news. And then everybody was talking about it for a week. And what I thought was interesting was the Voynich Manuscript story comes like two weeks after they uh, they cracked this other code. Um, and let me let me read this. So... 1676, August 11, 1676, you have a convent in southern Italy and a young nun, Benedictine nun, named Sister Maria Crocifissa della Concessione. Whoa. Yeah, that's, I don't know if I said it all right. Sister Maria Crocifissa della Concessione. Yeah, now I said it right. That's a lot of syllables. <laughs> it's a lot of syllables. She uh, has a fainting spell and wakes up and her face is covered in ink. Whoa. Right? Hate it when that happens at a party. Yeah, I know. Well, the thing is, actually, that did happen to me at a party. Remember? Oh, when people remember. people wrote on my face. Not cool. Not cool. Not cool. People. Don't run in your friends' faces out there, people. No, don't do it. Especially if they have to perform the next day. Because if you use, like, a marker, and then you ha- like you get to use lava to get that off your face. And then your face is going to be all messed up on stage. <laughs> Just a word to the wise, my friends. Okay. So, the legend was that she was possessed by the devil and she wrote this long letter. And the idea was, can people decipher Sister Maria's letter from the devil while she was, you know, this night she was possessed and wrote these things. And she was an expert. She like, she knew several different languages. That was the thing back then too. Like, I don't know why we don't know as many languages now as we did. But when you, when you hear about uh, these, these medieval not a lot of the nuns because they had to know Latin. They knew Greek. Uh, she knew Italian, well, which is very related to Latin. Fair enough. But <laughs> a lot of these guys, even we're talking about Isaac Newton before, like he knew Latin and Greek and English and everything. Like now, yeah. if, if somebody knows two languages, we're like that high five to wow. that guy. That guy's brilliant. <laughs> you know. So I think about it sometimes. Is like my mind is full of information about like i can tell you what happened in season three episode four of the sopranos but i can't speak another language or you know <laughs> i can speak a little bit of weak german well don't downplay the usefulness of that mike that's true you've won many a trivia night and, with your pop culture knowledge and we are on a pop culture and paranormal podcast <laughs> so that's kind yeah. of so i do find value in it 
Well, anyway, they used the software that they said they got from the dark web. All right. Oh, that's bad. So, so what's the dark web? The dark web is the place where people do illegal things on the internet. Because th- you can't really do that many illegal things on the internet because everything can be traced to your IP address. Everyone can, f- I mean, you are connecting somewhere, physical connection, your computer is. Now, the dark web is untraceable. It's where they do untraceable things. It's, it's where you, people make drug deals. It's where people do prostitution stuff. You know, the whole the whole thing of making deals over the internet, but they find ways to make it untraceable to their IP addresses. That's the dark web. And so they also have a lot of encryption software, right? Because they're encrypting illegal messages. So the thing is, people have been using that software to try and figure out uh, these old manuscripts and letters. So this letter from the demon, you know, this letter from the devil, they said that they used this decryption software and it worked to figure out what she was talking about. So they used ancient Greek, Arabic, a runic alphabet and Latin to descramble the letter. And they said that it was talking about the relationship between humans, God, and Satan. Um, Sister Maria, or whoever had possessed her, encouraged God to abandon man and leave him in the clutches of the devil. Ouch. The translation is, God thinks he can free mortals. This system works for no ones. And the text describes God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit as dead weight. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of wow. laugh like, like, de- like that was an expression they use. Oh, they're dead weight. Pretty harsh. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the modern interpretation is that she had schizophrenia, and that was how she was imagining she was having a dialogue with the devil. Because that's the idea. If you're afraid the devil is around all the time, and you're schizophrenic, and you hear voices, well, you're going to hear the voices of. If you think the voices are evil, it's going to be somebody whispering, the devil whispering in your ear. Yeah. And since she was a language expert, she could write this letter in several different languages. And that's why it took him years to uncover it. So I thought that was interesting that like that comes out on September 11th. The Voynich manuscript thing comes out, you know, like September 10th. So within like two days, you have these uh, competing stories about ancient texts being uncovered and just, you know, and the solutions being found. And I thought that was really interesting. Like that was. Yeah. Was that just they understood that people were kind of into it or people get all excited about mysteries being solved and, and they want to jump on board. So yeah, that, I thought that was exciting. So that's kind of want to talk about it because these different texts and I didn't realize there were so many mystery books in the world. So the Voynich Manuscript was one and it looks like whether this guy's right or not, that it's not quite as exciting as everybody had hoped. Aww. So I, I think for some of the more excitement, we got to go into the world of fiction. Okay. Uh, well, we like that world. Yeah. Because this last season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is a Marvel Universe show, and I, I still watch it. I still like it. I watch all the Marvel stuff. It was all about this evil book called The Darkhold, and they had to try to translate it. And if they could translate it, it would show them this, um, you know... It could make technology greater. It it turns one guy into a ghost and he can sneak in between places and stuff. And people become obsessed with this magical book called The Darkhold. Cool. So that's the whole season of that. And you've seen Evil Dead 2 or Army of Darkness, right? Yeah, yeah. a long time ago. Okay. Well, I've seen them about 60 times. Army of Darkness, I've probably seen about <laughs> 60 times. Evil Dead 2 about 10, 15 times. Wow. But yeah, in high school, like we just watch the movie over and over again. And so just obsessed with Army of Darkness. You liked it a lot. Yes, I did. And well, that's Bruce Campbell at his best, that big stud. 
But the thing is, in that, that, that all the Evil Dead trilogy is about people that find an evil book. And the book is bound in human flesh and inked in human blood, right? That's the whole point of it. And it can make monsters come out and everything. But what's interesting is they call it the Necronomicon. That sounds disgusting. Well, the Necronomicon is a uh, is an homage to our man H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, so it's not a, a con where people dress up and... I'm sure they have a Necronomicon <laughs> where people do, but they probably talk about H.P. Lovecraft. People walk around dressed up as books. <laughs> Evil books. <laughs> well, now we know there's a bunch of them. But what's funny is, okay, so Sam Raimi, when he develops a story for the Evil Dead, he has the Necronomicon in there as this evil book that all of a sudden gets spirits and it releases demons. It releases the Evil Dead to come and kill everybody. And the funny thing is, is that... Um, so H.P. Lovecraft makes up this book called the Necronomicon uh, in one of his stories. And the idea is that it's this strange language and it's scary and it has this dark, arcane knowledge of the old ones, of the, you know, Cthulhu and all his buddies. Mm. So they have this. And actually, Colin Wilson, who we talked about two episodes ago, we talked about Toby Hooper. He's the guy that wrote the book that uh, Life Force was based on, Space Vampires. Yeah. And he was challenged by August Derleth to write his H.P. Lovecraft book. That's right. Right. So August Derleth from Wisconsin challenged Colin Wilson to write a story like H.P. Lovecraft. So he wrote the Space Vampires. In another one of his stories, which is H.P. Lovecraft based, he wrote The Return of Loigor. Is, I don't know how to say Roy Gore, but it's two L's. But in that story, the Voynich manuscript turns out to be a copy of the Necronomicon. Interesting. Yes, isn't that fun? That you know. Yeah, that is fun. Colin Wilson did that. But the thing is, so in the late '60s, somebody makes a, a fake version of the Necronomicon. Okay. And they sell it. You know, they sell it in the bookstore. Uh-oh. And so somebody makes a fake version of Necronomicon that's all mystical, and now you can buy a copy of it in any Walden books at every mall in the country. <gasps> and so people start thinking that the Necronomicon's a real book. Of course they do. Because H.B. Lovecraft fans made a fake one. <laughs> and so, you know, people are like, well, you know, it's it, it's real, and, and that's what's... But this is before you could look stuff up on the internet. There's nothing in the book that says it's a work of fiction. It just says this is a translation of this ancient book from the 8th century. So it's kind of like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre beginning with this is based on a real story. Bingo. It's exactly the same kind of thing. You know, it's funny. We were talking about they call it the Lovecraft Circle. And August August Derleth was in the Lovecraft Circle. Uh, Robert E. Howard, who wrote the Conan stories, the Conan stories. And they all were exchanging letters all the time. That's fun. One of the youngest members of the Lovecraft Circle was Robert Block. Okay, now Robert Block wrote Psycho, and eventually he would write a lot of different TV and films starting in the 1960s, but he wrote the book Psycho that Alfred Hitchcock made the famous movie. And of course, Psycho is about Norman Bates' relationship with his mother, which is based on Ed Gein. Uh-huh. So Robert, yeah. Robert Block has his own mysterious text in his books, but what's fun is that, I mean, Robert Block also was living in Milwaukee too. So, Oh man, so many connections here. Right, so the cool thing is, is that you know Robert Block and August Derleth uh, were two Wisconsin, like uh, Robert E. Howard's in Texas and H.P. Lovecraft's in Rhode Island. But the awesome thing is like we had two Wisconsinites in there who have their mystical books, you know, and that, I thought that was a lot of fun. Very exciting. But the Necronomicon is probably the most famous fake magical book of spells and weirdness. 
you know, that most people can recognize. They even had the Necronomicon featured on the real Ghostbusters cartoon. That's awesome. You know, so that was uh, that was a place. That's pretty mainstream there. Yes, it was pretty mainstream. And just a couple of other weird texts is that uh, there's this thing called the Devil's Bible. Okay. And this one isn't like an untranslatable manuscript, but it's got a lot of weird images in it. Hmm. And it's, it's huge. It's the largest known medieval manuscript, and it's composed of 310 leaves of vellum. Ooh. But it would have taken 160 donkeys to make what? enough. That's what it says. That it would have taken 160 donkeys that's, to make enough for that book. That's horrific. Right. I mean, that's a lot of donkeys. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's huge. It's 36 inches tall, 20 inches wide, and eight, eight and a half inches thick. There's a picture of the devil in it that's, oh, how big is it? It's, it's like half a meter in height. Wow. I mean, and so for those of you not familiar with the metric system, that's like a foot and a half. <laughs> nice. And, and that's why they call it the Devil's Bible. And there's a whole like legend behind it that there was this monk who had broken his monastic vows and was sentenced to be walled up alive. Aww. And in order to avoid the penalty, he promised to create a book to glorify the monastery forever. So... Nearing midnight, he he couldn't finish the book, and he realized he would not finish the book. So he prayed not to God, but to the devil to help Uh-oh. him finish the book in exchange for his soul. Man, that's spooky. And so the idea was that the devil finished the manuscript for him, oh. and so the monk did the big picture of the devil as gratitude. <laughs> okay, that's a cool story. Yeah. So, this is from Wikipedia. In tests to recreate the work, it is estimated that reproducing only the calligraphy without the illustrations or embellishments would have taken five years of nonstop writing. Wow. That's called the Codex Gigas. And that's English for giant book. That's really the Codex Gigas just means giant book. So, (laughs) not really creative. The Devil's Bible is a little more creative. Um, There's one thing that was just translated not too long ago called the Gospel of Mary. And this was found, and so this, these are Christian texts from the second century, and they found the Gospel of Thomas, which the movie Stigmata is based on. Ah. Uh, so if you've seen the movie Stigmata, the Gospel of Thomas, the famous thing about the Gospel of Thomas is it says that the church is inside you, and so it basically says don't go to church, or you don't need to go to church, because the thing is the Catholic Church says you have to go to Mass or you, or you go to hell. Uh-huh. They have actually six days a year, or whatever. They have holy days of obligation. Okay. Obligation. You means you have to go. That's yeah. The, that's no the choice. Whole thing. Right. So the Gospel of Thomas basically says you don't have to go to church to go to heaven. Um, so that's Stigmata talks about that. But anyway, this Gospel of Mary translated, and it translates into these thirty-seven different. Well, looks like fortunes. Says things like, go make your vows, and what you promised, fulfill it immediately. Do not be of two minds, because God is merciful. It is he who will bring about your request for you, and do away with the affliction in your heart. So what does that sound like? To me, that sounds like an ancient magic eight ball. Totally. So what people would do is they would go see an oracle who had this book, and they would ask a question about the future, kind of like people would ask Roger Bacon's brazen head. Exactly. Back to Zoltar again. Here <laughs> right. we are. It's, and so the thing is, we're making jokes about Zoltar in the movie Big and all this kind of stuff, but people were interested even in 
if they couldn't get astrology because astrology was demonic, or if they, you know, you couldn't uh, pray to the old gods because in Christianity you only have one God. Well, maybe you get help from Mary, Jesus's mom. And so they'd go to an oracle and they open the book, they ask a question, they'd open the book to a random page, and it would say things like, all signs point to yes. Um, No, that's not what it said. That's just what they say in the eight ball. But the thing is, it was 37 different possible solutions. So it's almost like a a random number generator of things that you could get. So I thought that was really interesting as far as a mystery text that was very recently translated. And there's one more that's a lot more modern than the Voynich manuscript. But this is the first time I ever heard of a mystery text. Like I'd heard of, you know, magical spell books. And stuff when yeah. I was a kid. But there's something called the Beale Ciphers. And I don't know if you've ever heard about this. I have not. Okay, so this is, they first sold these things in 1880. And it was a uh, pamphlet, which was a series of numbers, just a, just a series of numbers. And it's supposed to lead to a buried treasure. Okay, so in 1822, this guy named Thomas J. Beale goes to Lynchburg, Tennessee, and stays at an inn. And he says he's got to travel somewhere. And he gives these weird papers with numbers on it in an iron box to the innkeeper he's staying with. Okay. And he's like, I'm going to be back soon. I'm gonna, I got to go on a journey west, but I'm going to come back here. And if I don't come back in 10 years, then you can check out what's in the box. But oh, that's uh, exciting. Right. So he said time capsule. And the thing is, he goes to St. Louis and then sends a letter from St. Louis to this innkeeper, Robert Morris, that his buddy is going to mail him a key to all those different numbers. And he's going to tell him what it means. All right. But then nothing ever happens. And he never gets a letter. It's said that Morris doesn't open the box until 1845, so 23 years later. Wow. He kept his word. Yes. And he says when he opens the box, he finds two regular letters and then three papers that are all just weird numbers. And in the regular letters, it says that Thomas Beale buried a treasure worth something like $20 million somewhere in Virginia and that these cryptograms will lead you to the treasure. Sweet. And it's it's a free-for-all. Whoever finds it gets it. Yeah, that's that's the point, because he's dead. <laughs> that's so cool. So the message is like, I've deposited in the county of Bedford, about four miles from Buford's, in an excavation or vault, six feet below the surface of the ground, the following articles, belonging jointly to the parties whose names are given in number three, paper number three, which is not uncovered, 1,014 pounds of gold, 3,812 pounds of silver. Okay. So wow. another one in 1821, 1907 pounds of gold and 1,288 of silver. Also jewels <laughs> obtained in St. Louis. So much fun stuff. And they think it's going to be worth today, worth $43 million. That's the idea that, well, what, that would be like, you know, how many pounds of gold is it? So it would be worth $43 million. So the idea is everybody wants to figure out what the actual location is and they could get it from these cryptograms. Now, what they did was one of the ciphers is easily decrypted by using a copy of the Declaration of Independence. So what happens is you look at it and you see like, okay, this is number 115. Then you go to the Declaration of Independence and write, you find out the 115th word. 
and that's the first word. The 70, 73 is the next one. That's the next word. So you go through the Declaration of Independence and you find each word and then that's how you decipher it. Well, that only works okay. for one of them. It doesn't work for any of the other ones. So they've tried, uh, you know, people have tried the Constitution. People have, you know, people have tried a whole... Yeah, this could be endless. Right. They've tried a whole bunch of different things. And the first time I heard about it, there was a computer magazine. Computer magazines used to come with programs that you could type in yourself. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this one came with the story of the Beale Papers. And it came with a program you could type in. And if you typed in the Declaration of Independence or you typed in a different document or whatever, it would do the work for you. It would find Sweet. the number of words, it would match it to the cryptogram, and then it would cool. try to do that. So you could, you could import text from a whole bunch of different documents to try to find out, you know. And in the 1980s, when I first read it, it was worth $20 million. So that's why it was exciting. So did you punch all the things in? Did no, you try I don't to find it, Mike? I don't, I don't think I ever punched it in. Oh. My six-year-old self did not want to do all the work, even though I did punch a lot of I did punch a lot of those programs in. That was one yeah. uh, that I didn't, but I was always excited about it. What's funny is, I mean, people have said that it's a hoax because the thing is, this happened in 1822, and the the paper's not released till 1880s. Oh right? wow! But that's the idea, though, is that these guys weren't going to make it public because they spent 40 years themselves trying to do it. Yeah. Right. So and I want somebody to snarf their loot. Yeah. Well, some people think that it was Edgar Allan Poe that wrote it because he was really into cryptograms. Yeah. But he died in 1849. So the, the pamphlets weren't published for another 31 years. So I doubt he would have worked on it and then just been like, yeah, 31 years later, you should you should print this. Yeah. Right. But this has been on Myth Hunters, Expedition Unknown, Unsolved Mysteries, of course. And people still have not solved the two other Beale ciphers rather than the first one. So that was exciting because I totally forgot about that entire thing. Uh, and then reading that article and getting all excited about it when I was a kid. That so is cool. I was doing research for this podcast. So the Voynich Manuscript, is it a women's health manual? That is something I cannot answer. But it sure does. But all those women, it sure does look like it could be a Williams head. So they could be wrong. Maybe the elixir of life is in it. But you know what? I think you have as much chance of finding the elixir of life in the Voynich manuscript as you do in the fake Necronomicon from the 1960s. Yeah. All right. So. Very, very uh, cool stuff. Yeah, I agree. The way that these guys would make books is that they would copy older books. And that was a tough, boring job. Like if you were a monk, most of your day, oh. if you were praying... Sometimes you got to stomp grapes, I guess. But most of the time, you would just sit there and you would just copy books. Kind of like when you make a set list for us to play, and then we have to make three copies of it. So we sit there and right. manually copy them. Exactly. But imagine <laughs> doing that for a thousand pages. Or yeah, imagine doing that for the entire Bible. You know, and that's what they did. Like, a lot of work. Right. And that's why, I mean, and most people just didn't read. Of course, you didn't have to. So monks are the only people that could read. Right. I mean, until we get to... You know, we're talking about Isaac Newton knowing six languages and stuff. But the thing is, is that it was such a labor intensive, you know, the idea of the printing press, you know, Gutenberg changing the world. And that's what they think that the Voynich manuscript was. This guy was copying and like synthesizing all this data from old Greek and Latin guys like Pliny the Elder and uh, Aristotle they all had their own kind of health manuals. And mm -hmm. so the song this week, well, it goes back to the idea that when you make a copy of something, it's not quite as good as the original. 
And so uh, that's where we're going with. We want to talk about the way these guys used to have to do things, the miserable existence of <laughs> copying a Bible or an old book or something Ugh. onto calfskin. Anyway, uh, so they were making carbon copies of things. And this song is called Carbon Copy.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Hey, did you see the calendar for next Thursday? Yeah, I saw it. I circled it and starred it and put a giant smiley face on it. Me too, because I cannot (laughs) wait to talk to our patrons again. Yes, me neither. It's my favorite part of the month when we get to do our live hangout with our Mm -hmm. Patreon friends. So we are looking forward to Thursday, September 28th at 7 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to. We got a lot to talk about. And uh, if you'd like to join that hangout, please join our Patreon community by visiting www.othersidepodcast.com slash donate. That's the place where you can find all the cool things that you're going to get if you become a Patreon to the See You on the Other Side podcast. In addition, we can hang out and talk about your favorite paranormal topics, get your input on your favorite stuff for the show. And also, if you have questions that you want to talk about and you're thinking, I can't really talk about this with people at work or my friends think I'm weird if I talk about it, you can talk about it with us because we are ready to believe you. We love it. And a special shout out to our Patreon and good friend, Ned. Dr. Ned. Who, yes, he's pledging us at a level where he gets a personal shout out every single episode. And thank you for your dedicated support. And thank all of you in the Patreon community for helping make the See You on the Other Side podcast possible. We will see you next Thursday night at 7 p.m., September 28th. Thursday. September 20, hang on, Thursday, September, Thursday, September 28th, (laughs) Thursday, September 28th at 7 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Perhaps a UFO? Yeah, it could have been the UFO, it could have been the Squatch.